Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York, and I want to let you guys know right off the bat that we have a special comedy show coming up on Saturday, December 18th at Westside Comedy Club, which is right here in beautiful Manhattan, and it's on the Upper West Side, if you hadn't figured that out. And the reason I'm mentioning this show is because someone that many of you know and love will be performing with me at 6.30 p.m. on December 18th at Westside Comedy Club. I'm talking about none other than Joseph Stapleton. Stapes is going to be in town, and we're going to have a party at Westside Comedy Club. So uh, you can get tickets if you visit westsidecomedyclub.com and buy tickets for the 6.30 show on December 18th. Now, I want to continue this week my review of the tournament that I've been reviewing (laughs) from the Wynn Hotel and Casino in fabulous Las Vegas. I love the Wynn. It's a great place to play. They have really good action, comfortable seats, anything you want to drink, uh, professional dealers, great staff. So, yeah, of course, I'm a big fan of the Wynn. And no... They are not paying me to say that. So this is the uh, same tournament. It's a $1.5 million guarantee prize pool, which they blew out of the water. Uh, they end up having almost $3 million in the prize pool. Uh, it's a $1,600 buy-in. And, uh, yeah, I'm just going to continue on. I don't really want to get into, like, what's going on in poker, uh, gossip, and stuff like that. I know you guys want strategy, so this is going to be a strategy intensive episode i'm hoping that i don't talk too much about just one hand and that won't allow me to finish this tournament review uh so that next week we can talk about something else besides the 1600 tournament from the win but there were just some interesting spots in this one and it was kind of towards the uh beginning of my quote-unquote summer out in vegas which actually happened in the fall of course And, you know, now that we've established some of my opponents and some of the other characters at the table, I think it makes sense to continue on and talk about the uh, key moments from this event. So at this point, there were about 150 players left in my flight, which was flight A. I believe they had three total. Uh, Only 39 players advanced to day two. The way this tournament works, 11% of the field moves on to day two, and the rest do not. So when you make day two, you are not quite in the money yet, but it happens very soon on day two. So uh, the average stack is about 60,000. We have 62,000, so we're right there in the mix with an average stack. The blinds are now 800 and 1,600 with a 1,600 big blind ante. So what that means is we have an M of 15-ish. Yeah, there's 4,000 in the pot to start. And we have, again, 62,000. And we have about 40 big blinds in our stack, if you prefer to see things that way. So 
Uh, we've been talking about this player. He's mentioned several times that he's from Florida and he lives in Florida and he plays in Florida. Uh, he is an old man who likes to get involved in a lot of pots, who very seldom raises, but very seldom folds. So, not surprisingly, he limps in from second position off of about 100,000 in his stack. And the action folds all the way around to the small blind, who is also a player that I mentioned in a recent episode. He is an older player with uh, an angry energy about him. He's probably in his late 60s, early 70s. And he has kicked my chair at least four or five times. And what's peculiar about it is that when I mention to him that I <laughs> I don't appreciate it, I'm about as nice as can be. I say, sir, could you please try not to kick my chair? I know we're a little crowded here, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I even give him an out, right? I give him an excuse. He can't help himself. He gets angry at me and he's like, I'm not doing anything wrong, you know, that kind of thing. So he's like a grumpy old angry man. And so the, these are my two opponents in this hand. He limps in from the small blind and we are now in the big blind and we've got the seven of hearts seven of spades uh so yeah of course you can raise with this hand i mean against this uh limpy guy old man visor i think i was calling him in the last episode so old man visor is very likely to have just any two suited like really he could have almost anything he just doesn't fold uh and now the small blind was getting a great price and so, of course, he could have a pretty wide range as well. Pocket sevens doing great against both of these players' overall ranges. I could certainly raise it up, uh, maybe even for value, uh, because old man visor is not going anywhere. I opted to just check, and I'm not really sure this is the right decision. Both of these players have me covered, by the way. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's a, a mandatory raise. I would certainly have raised if I had pocket nines and probably pocket eights as well i think sevens is right there on the border as far as the pocket pairs that i would want to raise with in this situation so yeah i kind of went conservative here and just checked it and the flop comes ten of hearts five of spades tray of hearts so ten five tray with two hearts hero holding pocket sevens including the seven of hearts and the small blind checks. Now, I think checking with sevens here is probably a mistake. I'm sure that a solver would tell us we have to check some of the time so that we can have a check calling range versus old man visors betting range when checked to, etc., etc. I think that when you are not playing against a robo supercomputer solver bot genius, you can basically just make the play that makes the most sense versus your particular opponents. Especially in this hand, I have two amateur opponents. I don't think they are deep thinkers when it comes to poker tournament strategy. So I can just go ahead and bet every time here. I think checking is a mistake versus my two opponents in this hand. I have a pair between top and middle pair and I also have backdoor straight and flush possibilities just in case I am behind. I can get value from much worse. I think that both of these players would probably call my bet with any two wheel cards, any two over cards, uh, any ace. I think I can get a lot of action. Certainly I can get action from pairs worse than sevens, like if our opponent has pocket fours or uh, 
5X or Trey X, I definitely can get lots of value for my hand and I need to start building the pot now. Keep in mind too that my hand also benefits greatly from when they fold a hand like Jack-9, which has no pair right now, but would probably fold to a bet even though it has substantial equity versus my pocket sevens. So I think betting is mandatory here, and I did, I'm glad to say. I put in, the, the pot was 6,400, and I went for value to the tune of 2,600. I like my sizing here. I don't want to go too much bigger than that. I don't want to make it too easy for them to get away from some of the hands with which calling would be a mistake, uh, namely hands like ace-deuce, king-queen with a heart, and the like. So I think 26 gets it done. We get action of the type that we want with this sizing. So old man visor folds and only the chair kicking small blind calls. So now with 11,600 in the pot, we are going to see a turn card and it is the ace of clubs. So our board is now 10 of hearts, five of spades, tray of hearts, ace of clubs, hero holding the pocket sevens. So our opponent checks. And now I don't really think that I need to fear my opponent having me beat very often. I mean, sure, he could have some kind of weird ace X in his hand. Possibly he could have a 10 even, but mostly my sevens are way ahead of his range. But the problem is he will often fold a lot of the hands that we are beating just because he fears the ace so much. Uh, in my experience, the older players tend to be overly concerned that that ace must have hit me. So for that reason, I want to check this card and maybe go for value on the river if it's a blank. So I'm happy checking behind here. I, that's what I did. And I think that's the best play. Um, I don't think that betting this card is a huge mistake, but it does result in a lot of folds that if you just wait till the river, you can actually get a little bit more value for your sevens. So I checked behind and the river is another ace. It comes the ace of spades. So our final board is 10 of hearts, five of spades, tray of hearts, ace of clubs, ace of spades. And once again, our opponent checks to us. And this time, I think we need to go for value here. We're still trying to get action from a hand like five, four, six, five, four tray. There are so many hands that our opponent will now be more comfortable calling because everybody knows that second ace makes it much less likely that we have an ace in our hand. And especially when we didn't bet it on the turn, now the second ace appears and all of a sudden we bet, we will probably get a lot of calls from worse hands that are overly suspicious of our bet. So the reason we want to go big here is that we're probably always getting called by a five or a tray or pocket fours, possibly even pocket deuces. We are going to get action from all of those hands, almost no matter how much we bet. And because in the long run, we're going to be ahead of that calling range. And because our opponent is so likely to be suspicious of a river bet that he will call us down pretty light on this run out, I think it's a great time for a large bet. I opted in the moment to put in 8,800 into the pot of 
11,600. And now in retrospect, I think that I could have gone even a little bit bigger and probably gotten action from hands that I was beating. As it turns out, our opponent called rather quickly and I was thrilled to turn over my sevens and fully ready to collect this large pot. And uh, I ended up being shocked to see that our opponent had 10 tray, which means that he flopped top and bottom pair on a board that had two hearts and just checked and called on the flop. And then it went check, check on the turn and he checked again on the river having been counterfeited by the running aces. So that was a pretty shocking hand. I didn't think that our opponent would have many tens in his range and I certainly didn't expect him to have flopped top and bottom pair given the way he played the hand on the flop. To me, it just goes to show that I actually know next to nothing about poker and I need to learn how these people are approaching these hands. Uh, in my day, if you flop top and bottom pair on a two heart board and you were uh, a member of the AARP, you would check raise it 100 million percent of the time because you're afraid that your opponent has a flush draw. This guy slow played it all the way home and to my surprise, he ended up beating my aces and sevens with his aces and tens. So that was a very surprising and head-scratching type of hand, which put us uh, a bit below the average stack. All right, the next hand I wanted to review was way later, um, hours after that, that last hand. Uh, in fact, there are now only 77 players left in this tournament, and remember, 39 will advance to day two. Uh, we have managed to run pretty well, and we've got the stack up to 140,000, so a nice recovery from that disastrous pocket sevens versus 10 tray hand hours ago. So the blinds are now uh, 1,500 and 3,000 with a 3,000 big blind ante, and we have 140,000 which again is right around average. It kind of makes sense. Half as many players are remaining as there were in the other hand, and our stack is twice as big as it was back then. So yeah, of course those numbers uh, make a lot of sense. Our M is now 18. We have about, what is that, 47 big blinds, give or take. So we're doing fine. Uh, no need to go absolutely crazy with any two cards or anything like that especially this late in the day when people are starting to get the sense that they might be able to make it to day two, roughly half of the remaining field will do just that. So uh, in late position, we have a new player at our table. He's only been here for a short time. Uh, he strikes me as a decent player. He's got an expensive looking backpack, really good headphones. He has a screen on his cell phone that doesn't allow me to see what he's reading on that phone. These are signs of a professional, generally speaking, uh, to show up that prepared for battle. He had uh, a nice, comfortable looking sweatshirt. This was not this player's first tournament, especially not with that $200 backpack or whatever he had. So he strikes me as somebody that I'm probably going to see many times <laughs> in various casinos throughout the uh, fall as we're all playing all the major tournaments in town. So that is our opponent in this hand, and it is folded to him in the cutoff, and he raises 
to 7,000. Again, 1,500, 3,000 are the blinds, and he makes it 7K. He's got a big stack in front of him, about 400,000, which is approximately three times the average. On the button, the old man who can't stop kicking my chair folds, and now we are in the small blind holding Ace of Hearts, Queen of Diamonds. All right, so I think this is a mandatory three bet. Uh, you know, we've got an opponent here that clearly knows what he's doing. His range for opening the cutoff is pretty wide, I would assume. And even if that range is tighter than I would typically imagine it to be, I still need to three bet because Ace Queen offsuit is such a strong hand for the situation and also very difficult to play from out of position. So I don't really mind three betting and, and winning the pot. Uh, also, I don't want to invite action from the big blind because uh, just having to play out of position against two opponents, even with a hand as strong as ace-queen, is not that much fun, especially when usually we will not flop anything and we just have to figure everything out. And it's just, it's just way better to be heads up. Although my first choice would actually be to just take this down with a big three bet right here. So I mentioned that I think I should do a big three bet. So let's see what we did. Uh, well, we made it 25K. So a little bit more than, it's about three and a half times the the original raise. So I think that's a healthy bet. It's not a trivially easy call for him. Um, he does have a huge stack. So he might just be like, you know what? I'm in position. I'm going to play a wide range. Clayton still has another 39 big blinds behind, so there's plenty of implied odds if I happen to hit a good flop. So I'm not necessarily expecting him to be overfolding in this position, but I think that my sizing here does give him the option of folding, where a smaller three bet by me would actually price him in. I could maybe even go a little bit bigger here, maybe 30K makes more sense, but you know what, ace-queen, it doesn't hate seeing a flop either. So I make it 25, and the big blind folds, as we hoped he would, and the original razor with the expensive backpack makes the call. And there is now 56,000 in the middle, and the flop comes. Jack of spades, seven of diamonds, four of clubs. So jack, seven, four rainbow pretty dry board here to say the least but who has the range advantage well i mean i think i do as the pre-flop three better certainly my opponent could have a set of jacks sevens or fours in his range uh, but otherwise what does he really have that gives him a range advantage we can have all the aces all the i mean all the ace ace all the ace all the ace king all the king king we can also have ace-jack. We have a certain number of jacks in our range, possibly king-jack suited. I would probably three-bet with at least some of the time, if not all the time. So it feels like a pretty natural spot for me to continue. I, I showed strength pre-flop, and a c-bet here seems to be the best option. But let's look at our other two options quickly. Uh, we can check planning to fold to most bets. And I think that's a bit weak. Certainly our opponent could have a hand like King Jack himself, King 10, Ace 10, other hands that we are actually ahead of with our Ace Queen. 
And then he can also have hands like Jack-10 suited, pocket eights, and other hands versus which we would have two live over cards. So I think that checking and folding, unless it's a pretty big sizing on his part, which it most likely will not be, I think that check folding on this flop is too weak. So that leaves check raising, which I think is a bit wild because what exactly are we representing? I mean, for value, what hands would I check raise on this board? I don't know, maybe pocket sevens? I don't know, why don't I just bet that? I I wouldn't check raise ace jack because what does that actually accomplish? Maybe I would check raise pocket aces sometimes, but honestly, guys, that's not really a big part of my strategy. I mean, I feel like especially as the pre-flop three better and especially being out of position, most of my value range, I'm just going to go ahead and lead because I do want to be able to make continuation bets with my two overcard hands exactly like the one I have here that missed. So I don't think that check raising makes a lot of sense. And I think that a talented opponent like we perceive this one to be would probably sniff that out. And if it doesn't make sense, he might get curious and sticky. So I don't like check raising here with this hand. And I don't like check folding because that feels weak. So I think that C betting is the way to go. Now, should we go big, small, or medium? Well, there's 56K in the pot, and we had originally three bet it to uh, 25K pre-flop. So what kind of bet gets the job done here? And also, what kind of bet will we want to make when we have pocket aces or pocket kings or ace jack or any of the other value hands? We want to try to match and balance because we're going to be bluffing here. A C-bet is essentially a bluff, right? So we're going to be bluffing here, but we need to do what we would do with our value range. So that way you are making the same play whether you're bluffing or value betting. I don't want to polarize myself here. I don't want to bet like the pot or over bet because on a board like this, our usual value hand is going to be one pair, right? So we need to make a bet that could get called by a jack if we could beat a jack. And so I opted to go down to 18,000, just a little less than one third of the pot. And I'm expecting to get action when my opponent has a piece of this board. And I think that he will often, if not always, fold a hand like King 10, which although we're ahead of has pretty significant equity here. And it's kind of a win when that worse hand actually does fold. I think he'll often fold hands like pocket fives to this bet as well. Because, you know, honestly, even though he might realize that he'll sometimes be ahead, it's going to be very hard to play a small to medium pocket pair for three streets against the pre-flop three better. So he's mostly calling before the flop with, with those hands in an effort to hit a set and try to bust me out of this tournament when I do have that over pair. So if he missed his set, he's usually going to fold, even for a bet this size, although some players will get a little sticky and curious and call just to see what happens on the turn. It's not out of the question for him to do that as well. So I bet 18,000. I'm happy with this sizing. I think I could go a little smaller even and get mostly the same outcome. Uh, My opponent calls, and because I bet so small, it actually is difficult to put him on exactly what type of hand he has. Does he have a hand like ace-king? Uh, maybe. Does he ever have something like pocket eights? 
Sure. I mean, I wouldn't fold my aids to this bet. Does he have a jack? I mean, certainly he has all that in his range. But some of his calling range, the point is, some of his calling range on this board with this small flop bet should be hands that we are actually beating, such as ace-10 suited with one of the suits that's already on the board. It's just a little too small for those hands to really be able to go away without being exploitable. And I think that this guy probably thinks in those terms. So he's going to want to be calling light because I bet small. Uh, Most of his range, of course, when he calls is going to be hands that are ahead right now. Hands like pocket eights, jack ten. Thinking ahead to the turn and river, we need to have a strategy in place. And that strategy is rather complicated and involves different maneuvers depending on precisely what comes off. So there's now 92,000 in the middle. And on 4th Street, it comes the 10 of diamonds. So our board is now jack, 7, 4, 10, with now two diamonds. So backdoor diamonds have shown up on 4th Street. And it's on Clayton, out of position in the small blind, holding the ace of hearts, queen of diamonds. So we do have a diamond in our hand for what it's worth. I don't know. This is close. I think that you can bet again on this card at least some of the time. And in doing so, you're trying to fold out hands like pocket sixes, pocket fives, uh, possibly a seven, a hand like ace seven doesn't really want to call again. Uh, The problem is some hands that might have folded to a blank if we bet again because it's the ten of diamonds gives uh, hands like pocket eights, pocket nines, a gut shot to go along with their one pair, which might actually be good even when we double barrel it. And I don't expect those hands to fold unless we really go big here on the turn, which I don't want to do because, again, we started this hand with an M of 18, and it's now a three-bet pot that we've already C-bet into. We don't want to put all of our chips to work trying to get this guy to fold when, again, he's got a big stack. We think he's got skills, and... They're probably just better guys to pick on. So for all those reasons, I decide to check this card. Uh, I did have designs on possibly check raising if our opponent chose to bet. But the problem with having a check raising strategy is that your opponent needs to bet in order for you to check raise. And we just don't know what he's going to do. So we check and the plan is I'm okay with him checking behind. I have up to 10 outs right now. Right, Any king gives me a, the nut straight. Uh, any ace, it might be good for one pair. Same with the queens. So I've got outs if I'm behind, and I think that I'm okay with it going check, check, should that be the outcome here. I'm also okay with checking and then evaluating kind of the live read of the situation. Like, do I think this bet is really strong if he bets the turn? Like, how do I feel about his bet might help me decide whether or not to check raise. But I remember definitely entertaining the idea of going for a check raise on the turn, balancing out my value range that I would have for doing that, which would include hands like pocket jacks, pocket tens, jack ten, although I'm not sure how often I'll be three betting jack ten from the small blind in this situation. But yeah, maybe sometimes I will. Uh, and other very strong hands. Also, a straight came in. 9-8 makes a straight. I certainly could have that hand in my range 
for three betting. Although, to be honest with you guys, I typically do not three bet connectors, suited or otherwise, from the small blind. But I know many of players do, and so my opponent can't know that I don't really do that. So he can't rule it out. Therefore, check raising the turn has its merits. And if I'm called on a check raise, I still have at least a few outs to make a straight. So keeping all of that in mind, I like having that option. Also being aware that if it goes check, check, that that too is not the end of the world because I'm either drawing live or I was ahead the whole way. So I check and my opponent checks as well. So we don't get to find out what would have happened if I had gotten the check raise in or whether maybe he would have bet in, a, in a, such a way that I would have figured out he was actually strong and then I might not want to check raise. So I've been known to change my mind in the middle of having a strategy just based on my live read. And sometimes I can't exactly put my finger on what that live read is telling me, but I've learned to trust those instincts when they happen. No such luck this time. It goes check, check, and we're going to a river with 92,000 in the middle. The river comes the five of diamonds for a final board of jack, seven, four, 10, five, with three diamonds. So the running backdoor diamonds did come in, and it's up to Clayton. For me, this river decision is very interesting. I don't want to check and have it go check, check, and have him win the pot with some sort of marginal hand, like bottom pair on the flop would be kind of a disaster, right? Uh, I also don't want to bet and have him make a very easy call with a hand like Queen Jack or something where he's just never folding, but he's been pot controlling and maybe trying to induce a bluff from me. So one thing that I've been generally working on is I think that overall, unlike probably most of our listeners, I tend to double and triple barrel a little too often. I'm not a maniac. I know that I sometimes make myself out to sound like a complete and total uh, crazy spasmodic maniac here on the podcast. But just what I've noticed is that my aggression level, generally speaking, is a little bit higher than I would like it to be both online and live. And so I've been looking for spots to kind of find give ups, if you can believe it. Now, I don't advocate kind of having a general strategy when we go into a tournament. But when it's really close, I typically tend to double and triple barrel too often. And so one thing that I was consciously trying to do, particularly towards the beginning of October when I first arrived in Vegas, was just to emphasize chip preservation in a way that I normally don't. Especially if there's only 77 players left in this flight. We started with like 450. Only 39 advanced to day two. Do I really need to take every single double and triple barrel opportunity uh, and possibly end up losing right before we make it to day two? So this kind of thought is probably the opposite from what most of you struggle with when you're playing, which is that you don't have enough bluffs because I tend to bluff too often. I've, I was actually looking, at least at that point of the poker season, <laughs> trying not to say summer, uh, I was looking for spots to sort of curb my aggressiveness. So all of this put together, combined with the fact that uh, I'm up against a tournament chip leader who strikes me as a very competent player, 
and I decided to just check this river. I'm still not sure if that was the right move. Would you guys have given up on your ace queen at this point? It's there's of course some chance that my ace queen is good. The problem for me is that I'm almost never going to be able to find that out because I think that when my opponent can't beat ace queen, he's usually going to bluff this river and I would probably end up folding. If not every time, then almost every time. So for that reason, we need to take whatever showdown value this ace queen has out of the equation because I'm not actually going to realize that value very much, if ever. So I gave up, I checked, and my opponent checked behind quickly and won the pot with pocket sixes. So I made it kind of easy on him, guys. I made a very small, less than one-third pot bet on the flop and then pretty much gave up on the hand after that. True, I did have designs on possibly check-raising the turn, but other than that, due to the runout and all the other factors we just listed, I basically gave up on the flop after one barrel of a C-bet with ace-queen. So you guys might be thinking, well, that's totally standard, Clayton, and that's totally fine. But, you know, typically my gut tells me, keep going, he's not that strong, and I always listen. This time I kind of sensed that he might not be that strong, but I did not listen because I was trying to think of all the other factors. And to be fair, I wasn't that confident of my read on this new player who had just joined our table a few hands ago. So that one cost us, but only in the sense that we didn't win the pot. We didn't actually lose that many chips, which is kind of the advantage to playing that conservative, let's not take every single spot style. So I was still totally fine after this pot I had, uh, you know, just a slightly below average stack because we didn't lose that many chips playing our ace-queen so passively. So unfortunately, after that hand was over, I went on a very bad run of cards, like really just unplayable stuff like queen tray and uh, hands like that, really not really finding spots to get involved. And my table got a little more aggressive. And at a table like that, I think it's important to have a good hand because you're going to get raised and re-raised a lot more than you would at a passive table. And at that point, my M was down to 12, 13, something like that, where getting three bet and having to fold is pretty disastrous. So I had a plan in place to just lock it down and wait for good hands. Uh, and those hands didn't really come for quite a while. And then with only about 55 players left in the tournament, I opened with pocket tens and then a tight player three bet and then a wild player shoved and i really was at a loss for how to play tens i think i have to get in there with queens always jacks and tens sometimes and just i felt the strength you know i felt like the player who shoved even though he was a wild player it just there was something different about him this time he didn't seem worried. He didn't seem like he was acting not worried. He seemed genuinely not worried to me, and I felt like he really wanted action in this spot. There's only 55 players left. 39 make it to day two, and here he's all in. And the original Razor had him covered. So all these factors, I just said, you know, who does this at the end of a 13-hour day at the win? I had to fold my hand. Sure enough, he had pocket aces, and I could have gone broke, right there so i was proud of my ability to get away from that even though my stack was getting short 
but I did have to fold and that would turn out to be the right thing to do. Um, a little while later, my M was six and a half and a tight player open and I looked down at pocket sixes and decided to fold them just because my opponent was tight, although I'm not sure what a solver would say to do against another solver. I felt like folding versus a tight player there was the play. Unfortunately, everyone else also folded, so I don't know to this day whether those sixes were any good. After that, I managed to steal the blinds a few times, although both times I actually had a hand to steal them with. Uh, that got my M up to eight and a half. And at that point, I opened from late position, actually on the button with pocket sixes. So I had folded the sixes a little while ago, but now this time the action's folded to me, so I'm the first one in, and I'm on the button, and I opened for the minimum with pocket sixes, and the small blind three bet, and the big blind shoved. So there, it's a pretty easy fold with my sixes. Uh, unfortunately, the small blind also folded. So this sort of happened, and that gets frustrating. And now with 49 players left in the tournament, my M was just five and a loose, aggressive French guy opened the pot. He had been at my table for about an hour at that point. Um, he was pretty much opening at least 75 or 80% of the time when, it, when the action had folded to him. So I decided to take a stand. Uh, he had a big stack, but I still thought that my hand was good enough. Uh, it folded to me on the button after he had opened from the hijack and I had pocket fives. This is pretty close. One question we can ask ourselves is, can I get into the money in this tournament by folding this and every other hand that I see for the rest of the day? I would say no, because we don't actually reach the money on this day one. There's another 1% of the field that needs to go away at the beginning of day two before they actually get into the money in this tournament. By the way, I really like tournaments that only pay 10% of the field. Some tournaments nowadays pay 15%. I've even seen online tournaments that pay up to 20%. I like bigger prizes for fewer players, as you guys know by now. Uh, so yeah, because I can't really just fold my way to a min cash, and because this player has been so loose aggressive, I think folding the pocket fives is a mistake. And there's only one other way to play them. So let's go, baby. I'm all in. Uh, he quickly calls with pocket queens and I bust out of this tournament in 49th place and that was the beginning of what would turn out to be a mostly frustrating six week trip to Las Vegas love your feedback on these hands and anything else at Clayton Comic you can follow me on Twitter and just tweet me at Clayton Comic let me know would you have played these hands the way I did are there any decisions I made or thoughts that I had that don't make sense to you or that you just disagree with or that you strongly agree with. I'd love to hear from everyone on Twitter at Clayton Comic. And also, if you guys have not yet signed up for your tournament Poker Edge membership, there has never been a better time. Just use the promo code podcast at checkout and you will save $10 off of your first month of membership to my favorite poker training site, tournamentpokeredge.com. So, for everyone here at TPE, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening. I wanna hold them like they do in Texas plays. Fold them, let them 
Hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me. Log in, intuition, play the cards with babes to start. And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart. Everybody, everybody knows she can't read a map.